0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. As you know, we're in an extended series on the book of Proverbs. Today is part 10, if you're counting. Uh, It's a little bit different topic today, but it's all throughout the book of Proverbs. We're going to look today at the theme of work. A Biblical Theology of Work. So we have a variety of passages on the overhead from Proverbs 8 and 10 and and, and other passages. And it says this. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the high point, along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, uh, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I cry out. I raise my voice to all men. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in the summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Do you see a man uh, skilled in his work? He'll serve before kings. He'll not serve before officials of low rank. Uh, He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who looks after his master will be honored. So again, today we look at this theme of work. Uh, The book of Proverbs speaks positively about work under the themes of of diligence, and speaks negatively about refusal to work under the theme of of sluggardliness or or laziness. Now, Now, we live in a culture, especially if you're in a profession, a uh, doctor, a lawyer, engineer, architect, uh, accountant, investment banker, a finance consultant, a stockbroker, computer programmer, uh, where there's, if you're in a, especially if you're in a profession, where there's today, where there's more pressure on and fewer boundaries to uh, and less stability in our work than in any other culture in history. The book of Proverbs tells us, if you want to have a fulfilled life, though, you've got to do four things, put it on the overhead. These four things. Number one, uh, you've got to do your work. Number two, you've got to love your work. Three, re-narrate your work. We'll talk about what that means. And then finally, redeem, redeem your work. So first, you've got to do your work. Proverbs 10, verse four. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. The word lazy here, it literally means slack. It comes from the picture uh, of a bow, like a bow and arrow. Uh, It's a bow that has not uh, been tightly strung. It's slack. Uh, And it's not that it won't shoot any arrows, uh, but the arrows will go astray. Uh, They're not accurate. Uh, And the contrast uh, to a lazy person here uh, is a diligent person. And and the word diligent means not just hard work, uh, but smart work, uh, targeted work, uh, strategic work. Uh, For example, knowing when it's harvested, knowing what to do. Uh, And therefore, it's talking about uh, the importance, not just of of drivenness, uh, but of diligence uh, in your work. Proverbs 27, 18. He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. He who looks after his master will be honored. Now, this last phrase about the master is something of a paradox, because to look after your master means you're a servant, or maybe even a slave, someone of, of low status. And yet it says, if you do it well, you'll be honored, which is a term of, of, of high status. Uh, what this is saying is that, is that in the eyes of God, and in the eyes of those who know, even the most menial tasks, even the most menial work, has dignity to it, uh, has honor to it. Now, what's this, what is this teaching? The teaching of the Book of Proverbs is incredibly positive about all kinds of work. Uh, And you don't realize how impressive this actually is unless you compare it to all the other religious texts uh, of ancient times and all the other cultures of ancient times. Take, for example, the Greek legend of Pandora's box. Uh, There's creation, there's human beings, they're living in this bliss, in this paradise, and Pandora gets a box. Uh, And the gods say, don't not open that box. And of course, she opens the box, uh, and when she does, what comes out? All kinds of human miseries uh, and ills come out of the, out out of, out into the world from the box: uh, death, decay, disease, aging, sickness, and work. Work, work comes out of Pandora's box. Or take the Anuma uh, Elish, the ancient Babylonian creation account. Uh, In this account, uh, the gods, uh, they make the world. There's Babylonian gods, they make the world. But then they discover it takes a lot of effort to maintain this world they've created. It takes a lot of work to keep it up. So what do they do? Uh, Marduk, the the head god, he says, I'll bring into being this lowly, primitive creature that we'll call man. uh, And we'll charge him with all the labor so that we gods can rest. (laughs) Now, in the overhead, in absolute contrast to every other religious text, and every other religion in ancient times, you go to the book of Genesis, what do you see? The very first thing you see is God with his hands in the dirt. God doing manual labor, making us. And it's not beneath him. This would be astounding to the Greeks, because the Greeks understood manual labor as being corrupt, uh, and all work as being a necessary evil. Uh, Manual labor was particularly degrading uh, in their worldview. But in the biblical account, there is God with his hands in the dirt. And when God creates paradise, the absolute perfect environment for human flourishing, into paradise, he puts work. He makes them gardeners. He charges them to tend and to keep the garden. Into paradise, God puts work. And this is all before sin, all before uh, the fall, all before brokenness. What does this mean? Uh, There is no religious text. There is no religion like the Bible. Look on the overhead. The scriptures associate all work, even manual labor, even menial labor, with great dignity and honor. There is no class of people. There's no class of workers. The Bible doesn't hold in high regard. There's no snobbery here in the Bible. There's no class consciousness. Long before Karl Marx, God did manual labor. Uh, and when he made the first human beings, he made them into gardeners. And when God actually showed up in the world in physical form, he didn't come the way the Greek gods are portrayed. He, didn't, he did not come as a philosopher. He didn't come the way the Roman gods are portrayed. He didn't come as a warrior or military general. No. No. He came as a carpenter, someone who works with his hands. And it's amazing to consider what the Bible says, what the Spirit of God does. Does the Spirit of God save souls? Yes, of course. But the Spirit of God also does other things. The Spirit of God creates the world. In the beginning, he's hovering over the face of the deep. Psalm 104, verse 30. The Spirit of God renews the face of the earth. Yes, the Lord saves souls, thank God. But he also takes enormous delight in growing and cultivating and enriching and caring for his creation and its well-being. And by making us gardeners, he's giving us every bit as spiritual a work uh, as a preacher does. Uh, to, uh, to, to dig a ditch, uh, to get water into a garden, uh, to paint a canvas, uh, to compose a piece of music, Uh, to preach a sermon, uh, to get investments in order to take a new product onto market. These are all forms of spiritual work. Why? Because God's a gardener. God's an artist. God's an investor in creation. Uh, God's a preacher. Uh, And there's no other religious text that looks at work like this does. The scriptures do, so positively. And because work was put in paradise from the very beginning, before the fall... And because it's part of the environment you have to have in order for the human heart to flourish, if you're not working, which, by the way, includes ministry work as well, or if you're not doing the work you're called to do, or you're not doing any kind of work you're proud of, if you're not doing the work you can take some satisfaction in, you're being cut off from your humanity. There's going to be a disorientation in your life. There's going to be an atrophying of your soul. Because God doesn't say that work is only a necessary evil. No. The Bible says work is a positive good. So on the overhead, the first thing you have to do is learn, number one, to simply to do your work. And secondly, the Bible says you also must love your work. And at this point, the Bible is looking at the motives of your heart. The Bible says that the motives, the reasons why you work are all important. There's two motives mentioned here uh, that you've got to get a hold of. If your work is going to be ennobling and and humanizing for you and for others uh, and not atrophying or or, or, or grueling on the overhead, the first thing you've got to do, you've got to work in response to human community. Proverbs 10 verse 5. He who gathers crops in the summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Now, why didn't this, the text simply say, He who sleeps through harvest uh, is a disgraceful boy or a disgraceful man? Why does it say son? And immediately you realize the Bible is saying a failure in your work life is also a failure in your family. You're not just failing yourself, you're failing your family. Because work is for the community. And look also at this word disgrace. Uh, you know, we modern Western people, when we see the word disgrace, We don't understand what it means in the ancient Near East, uh, what it means in the Bible. The words for guilt, on the one hand, and for shame and disgrace, on the other, are are not the same at all. Biblically, guilt is a failure to perform up to standards. That's guilt. Here are the rules, here's the law, you failed, you're guilty. But shame and disgrace is a failure of community. A failure to do for, for the community what you ought to do. Uh, And the purpose for work, according to the Bible, uh, the first purpose is you should do work uh, and choose work more for how it helps other people and how it helps the community and society and those around you than simply for your own personal profit uh, and advancement. The Bible says you should both choose your work and, and conduct your work more for the benefit of the people around you doing work that's useful, useful to society, useful to other people, more than choosing and doing work only for your own profit uh, and personal advancement. Famous British novelist, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote this amazing essay in which she just nails this. I'm going to put it on the overhead, what she writes. She writes, The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be, psychologically uh, and socially, to think otherwise. In the modern view, people become doctors, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. People become lawyers, not because they have a passion for justice, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. After World War II, one of the greatest surprises for many English men who had served in the army was that they found themselves, for the very first time in their lives, happy and satisfied. Why? Because in the army, for the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay, army pay was minimal, and not for status, everybody everybody was just thrown in together, but for the sake of getting something done for us all. Dorothy Sayers, what she's saying is this, do you know what a social revolution it would be, how much better society would be? if we chose work and conducted work for the benefit of our customers, uh, for the benefit of society in general, for the benefit of our employees, our co-employees, our colleagues, for the benefit of the people around us, more than for profit and personal advancement. She says, not only would that be socially a revolution, uh, uh, and the fact that we're not doing it is that it's actually unraveling our social fabric, but it also make for a psychological revolution, Because he sees, the says that all Englishmen, when they went into the army in World War II, they suddenly discovered, so this is what satisfying work is. There was almost no pay, no social standing, and yet they were happy. This is part of wisdom. Proverbs does not only give you rules on what jobs uh, um, to take, uh, and others, uh, I'm sorry, what jobs not to take, uh, other than obvious parameters, you know, don't be a drug dealer, <laughs> don't be a prostitute, or, or, or an arms smuggler, or a gangster. Most other jobs are allowable, but they're not necessarily wise for you and your gifts and aptitudes and calling. So the overhead. The book of Proverbs says, if you want a social and psychological revolution, then first start to choose work and do work and conduct your work in response to human need and community. Being useful for others on uh, the overhead. Then secondly, we're supposed to also choose and do our work in response to God's calling, your specific calling on your life. Look at Proverbs 22:29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He'll serve before kings. Now, there are a couple of ways to understand this word skill uh, in English. But in the Hebrew, this word skill it primarily means gifted. Someone with an ability, a talent, a gift. In the Bible and throughout history. The believing community has always said, look at your talents. Look at your gifts. Look at the things you're good at doing and the things that you love to do. Look at your capabilities and your interests. These are not just accidents. These are not random happenings. No, that's your calling. Your Maker, by giving you what you've got, is calling you into work that fits your capabilities. So do the work you want, the work you're good at doing, uh, and pursue the gifts God has given you. Now, no one's gifts are so narrowly focused that you you can only do one thing. But rather, your gifts are a primary way for you to find out what God wants you to do. Your gifts may, may take you away from jobs of great wealth, but follow your calling. And if you start to put these two things together, if you start to do the things for people's sake if you start to do things for God's sake, if you start to do things that fit your gifts and skills and, and likes and personality, then you'll start to do things for the sake of the work. You'll start to have a passion for your work. You'll have a whole new approach towards work. And it's an adventure. Because suddenly you start to realize, that the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, famous verse, for we are God's workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Do you realize what an adventure that is? When you stop working primarily for yourself and for money and for personal advancement, and you start to work more for the community, or more for others, more for the Lord, more in response to God's calling on your life, then what happens? John Coltrane, this great jazz saxophonist, uh, played with Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, many other famous Jazz greats, he had a religious experience in 1957. And he wrote about it on the liner notes of his most famous album entitled A Love Supreme. And on the overhead, this is what he writes. During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. And at that time, in gratitude, I humbly ask God to give me the means and privilege to make others happy through music. Now, one night, he's performing his his most spiritual composition called A Love Supreme. It's a song in praise to God. And and if you know anything about jazz, you know it's different every time. It's played different every time. Uh, He got up there and he played the lights out on his saxophone. He played his heart out. He played that night beyond what he thought he could ever do. Ever do. Beyond anything he'd ever conceived of. Uh, it was the best uh, rendition of this piece uh, he had ever done. And when, when it was over, and he stepped down off the stage, he exclaimed uh, these, these Latin phrase, Nunc Dimittis. This is the Latin for the beginning of what old Simeon said in Luke 2, 28, when he saw the young baby, Yeshua, at the temple. Now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation. Now what, John, what is John Coltrane saying by, referring, by referencing this quote? He's saying, I'm ready to go. I've done it. I'm not working for myself. I'm working to give people joy through music. I'm working to do my music to the very best of my ability. I'm thinking of God's calling. I'm thinking of other people. Uh, And one night, he got it. He did it. And he he says, I'm ready to go. What an adventure. Oh, what satisfaction. Uh, What a whole different approach uh, to work uh, than, than most of the rest of us have. So on the overhead, number one, you've got to do your work. Number two, you've got to love your work. Number three, you've got to re-narrate your work. What does that mean? Look at Proverbs 8, 1 to 4. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way, uh, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O man, I call out and I raise my voice to all mankind. What is the saying? Uh, it's saying that in the city, God's wisdom refuses to stay in the, just in the private homes, but wants to go out into the public square, the public spaces, uh, and to call aloud. Uh, and these public spaces are very important. Uh, so, for example, wisdom calls out beside the city gates. The city gate was the place where the elders sat and heard court cases, uh, disputes, uh, complaints. So when wisdom says she's calling out beside the gates, she's talking about being involved in the justice system. She insists on being heard in the the justice system of that society. Then she says, I'm going to call out also where the paths meet. Uh, Where the paths meet was where you had the town squares. Uh, Major crossroads came together to form public squares. We have them today. We have Times Square in New York City, uh, Trafalgar Square in London, uh, or Bin Square in Tel Aviv. Uh, These are the city's major marketplaces, uh, places of commerce. Uh, so here wisdom is insisting on being heard in the business and the commercial realm as well and then she says up, up on the heights every city had elevated places where important buildings typically religious buildings uh, were built on these high places uh, in Athens you have the Acropolis uh, in Edinburgh you have Arthur's seat in Jerusalem is Mount Zion the Temple Mount and in the cities on the heights on the high places are where you put your religious buildings your temples that showed what the society worshipped to exhibit what I'm calling the master narrative of that society. The master narrative says that for, says that for, that for that society, what life is really all about, what's really important uh, in life? What, what is, what's your life all, really all about? The meaning of life? So by putting the Parthenon on the Acropolis, it showed the Athenians were worshiping Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Uh, some cities worship the god of war. Some worship the God or goddess of beauty. And we have our modern equivalents today, don't we? Our highest buildings today in any city in America still tell us the master narrative of our society. For example, what are the highest buildings in, in all major modern American cities? They're not church spires anymore, no. They're office buildings, places where people make money. Because our master narrative in America is that individual freedom and fulfillment trumps everything. Individual freedom and fulfillment trumps family commitments, it trumps tradition, it trumps divine authority. Individual freedom and fulfillment trumps everything. And therefore the master narrative uh, has worked itself out in our society to say that financial profit is the only bottom line. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes we'll do community service because it makes people think well of us. But even then we only do it as long as it actually increases their profits and Because why? Profit is the bottom line. Because my individual freedom and fulfillment trumps everything. Now, God's master narrative is quite different. That's not what he says life is all about. He says what's wrong with us is we're all self-centered. The very thing that's wrong with us is that everyone is out for him or herself. On the overhead, and Yeshua's master narrative is this. I'm coming back into the world to reweave and renew the world and recreate true shalom, which is interdependent human flourishing and peace uh, and biblical justice. And I demand, he says, that my voice of wisdom uh, be heard, not only in private, but in the public place. That's what this passage is saying. Society tends to co-opt your work and put it it within its master narrative. Society influences and shapes and assimilates you in a thousand subtle ways to fit your work into its own master narrative. But the Lord says no. The Lord says, you don't limit or confine my wisdom into just the private parts of your life so it gives you peace and love and groovy feelings (laughs) uh, on a Shabbat morning. No. But rather, you need to do the Lord says, is what you need to do is you need to put your work into my master narrative. So that, for example, profit is only one among many things. And human flourishing is more important. You must therefore re-narrate your work. You must put your work and, and your whole life into my master narrative, the Lord says. Not society's master narrative. It's not enough for you just to come to shul on Shabbat uh, to get inspiration for, for your private life. Rather, you, you, you need to say, you need to ask yourself, how does my work fit into what the Lord wants? What is Yeshua's point of view? How does my work fit into that? Now, this doesn't mean, for example, if you're a salesman, that every single person who comes in to buy something, you need, first you need to try to convert them. No, you need to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does many things. The Spirit of God renews the face of the earth. The Spirit of God works to bring shalom, human flourishing, and biblical justice. The Lord cares about your customers, uh, your employees, your your managers, your shareholders, your community, uh, in a holistic way. And the Spirit of God may possibly uh, lead you to take a hit on your profit for the sake of others. Because that could be part of God's master narrative. So so how does this work out in, in real life? Here's a great example. Amazing example there was a great awakening, this mass revival in Britain in the 1700s. And many of these new believers started to ask, how do we take the gospel and now put it into public life? And these British believers immediately noticed the African slave trade. And for the next 30 years, believers in Britain did everything they could to work for the abolition of all slavery and slave trade throughout the British Empire. At one point, they did a massive petition drive and got one half of the entire voting population of England to sign a petition for the abolition of the slave trade. The slave trade in Britain was abolished in 1807, and slavery in the British Empire, existing primarily in the Caribbean colonies, was abolished in 1833. Now, the wealthy money classes were absolutely and utterly against this. against the abolition of slavery in Jamaica and in the other colonies. Because it was going to be a massive economic hit to Britain if they did this. So here's one account we'll put on the overhead. The planters in the Caribbean colonies... This is from a British history text. The planters in in the Caribbean colonies warned... that emancipation would cost investors in Britain catastrophic losses. And they pointed out that everyone in Britain would pay because the price of sugar and other foodstuffs would rise greatly if they now had to be, had to be produced by free labor. Imagine that, free labor. <laughs> These appeals carried weight, though, in the House of Lords. In those days, the lords were not just a figurehead, uh, and the money classes stood to, to, to lose more mightily than everybody else. And their agreement was needed for all legislation. So to gain this agreement, the abolitionists in the House of Commons agreed to accept the provisions of the Emancipation Act, as to compensate the planters for all their losses, by an enormous sum, right out of the British Treasury, equal to one half of the entire British annual budget. The Abolition Act passed, as I said, in 1833, providing that slavery would cease in all British colonies. The direct cost to individual British citizens was substantial, both in taxes to pay off the planters, and in taxes to support the British Navy's uh, enforcement against the slave ships. But the cost was also substantial in the increased cost of living, both for sugar and other goods, which rose sharply in price, just as predicted. Indeed, the costs of emancipation were so high that one historian called the British abolition of slavery voluntary <laughs> economic suicide, because the people of Britain were willing to trash their economy for almost a generation or two in order to rid themselves of the slave trade and slavery. And historians, the secular historians, they've been desperate to try to figure out why the British abolitionists were so willing to sacrifice so much profit to end slavery. One historian says the history of of British abolition is so puzzling because historians believe all political behavior is self-interested. The British anti-slavery movement has continued to intrigue historians, not the least of which because of the apparent lack of self-interest on the part of its principal supporters. This is totally contrary to all conventional views of political behavior because the abolitionists didn't gain anything in any way, any material way at all. but only suffered great economic cost. But this is the, startling, this is the truth here. The fact is, those who brought about abolition in Britain, what did they do? They quoted the Bible. They talked about sin and God's saving grace. That's a great example of putting the gospel in practice in real life. That's what it means to re-narrate your whole economy. So number one on the overhead, you've got to do your work. And number two, love your work. And number three, re-narrate your work. And then finally, number four, you've got to redeem your work. Now, work is, is often difficult to get through, right? It's difficult for us to, to make ends meet. Part of the problem in our society, we, we no longer have any hope uh, to, to pursue our work this way, I've see, to see its redemptive purpose. Because for many many of us, just, you know, you're just struggling to get by. And life seems so broken. And things often go wrong uh, with our work. So, for example, just when a company finally figures out a new innovation all the investment capital dries up. Or just when you you finally have your new business team put together, two of them quit and go to work for a rival competitor. Or just when you finally get to be wise enough to figure out how to to really master your profession, you're too old. Things often go wrong in our world. You start off idealistic, but because of the brokenness of reality, your work is often frustrating. Many times it doesn't go right. And then there's also Corruption, right? The Enrons and FTXs and and Bernie Madoffs of the world. Great corruption and graft. And so you may start off idealistic, but over time the reality of life grinds you down and you lose hope. You lose hope of accomplishing very much or, or getting much done for anybody else. You lose hope of ever achieving your dreams. You lose hope that you have the talent and the ability to pull off what you aspire to you lose hope. So first, we don't have the hope for the work that we're called to. And then secondly, we don't have the inner rest, the inner shalom. This writer, uh, Michael Musto, recently wrote an article about uh, Fashion Week in New York City and how busy everybody is. No rest. There are the designers and the artists and the seamstresses and the tailors and the models. They're all incredibly busy. And he writes this, we put it on the overhead. He writes, Fashion Week is that period of ritualized yearning in which people jockey for visibility, while hoping that nearness to a runway will purge them of that nagging feeling of soullessness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's not about the clothes. It's not even about the money. It's about us. We desperately need to believe that we count. That we have this feeling inside, that we have this feeling that we're nobody. And so we work like crazy to to prove ourselves. It's not just the money or just the advancement, and we make it when we get caught up in our work. We're not doing anything for anybody else. We're not even working anymore for the love of the job, and certainly not for the glory of God, like like John Coltrane did. We're doing it for us, so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can get rid of this nagging feeling of soullessness. That's why we overwork, and then we get burnt out, and then we underwork. <laughs> We start out too idealistic and then become too realistic and cynical. We don't have the hope. We don't have the rest, the shalom. So what do we do about it? Look at Proverbs fifteen nineteen: The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Now, at the first blush, at the very surface level, the prashat level, it seems to be saying, if I'm lazy, my life will go bad. If I'm diligent, my life will go well. Right, But notice it doesn't say diligent, does it? It says something unexpected that doesn't seem to contrast with would be the opposite of a sluggard, which is the, what the structure of the Hebrew poetry here would expect you to see. Rather, it says upright, yashar. Now, doesn't everybody have thorns in their path? Not only a sluggard. We all have, have problems with our work from time to time, even if we diligently work hard. And moreover... Who really is upright? Psalm 130, verse 3. O oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who would stand? Nobody. No one. No one is completely upright. So who is pure enough to qualify it as the upright here in Proverbs 15, 19? So at first blush, this proverb looks very straightforward. But the longer you look at it, it raises all sorts of issues. But if you keep looking at it further, it will look okay again. Look at this word thorns. Proverbs 15, 19. It's very significant. Because when Adam and Eve lost paradise, when they, when they turned away from God and said, in essence, we want to be our own saviors and lords, what did God say? God said, in essence, since I made you to serve me, but you've turned away from me, nothing in this world will go right for you. Look at Genesis three seventeen. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat... uh, you'll you'll eat your food from it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it'll produce for you the Lord says to Adam cursed is the ground because of you in painful toil toil you'll work but it will only produce for you thorns and thistles why do we rarely reach our aspirations why do we so often fail to achieve our goals why doesn't the world seem to work Why do things fall apart? Thorns, thistles. This world is broken. This world is fallen. There's a tendency to chaos and disorder. Right, The second law of thermodynamics. And it makes our work painful toil. Is there a way out? Yes. Cursed be the ground because of you. But look at Galatians 3.13. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us as it's written cursed is everyone who's hung from a tree Yeshua on the tree became a curse for you and for me the curse of Genesis 3 is that the ground would only produce thorns and painful toil but Yeshua's crucif- at, the- at Yeshua's crucifixion the Romans put a crown of thorns on his head they pounded thorns into his skull the curse fell on him. And for the most poignant and, and horrible picture of laborious work, don't look to things like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, this Greek myth of a man sentenced to eternally roll a rock up a hill, then it falls down again, he has to roll it up again and again throughout all eternity. That's an example of cursed work. <laughs> but don't look at that as the most horrible example. Rather, look at Yeshua on the tree, on the cross being crushed into the ground. Look at him toiling up, up the road to Calvary. Uh, look at the work that he did. Look at how cursed and abandoned and forsaken he was. Look how he was beaten and tortured and whipped and crucified. Nails pounded into his hands and feet. Crown of thorns pressed into his head. Spear in his side. Why? Why did he do it? Second Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him he took the thorns Yeshua took the thorny way he took the way that, that we deserved so that we could have the way he deserved and this is the solution first of all it's the solution for hope Hope you can keep on working oh, when your hopes are, are, are dashed so often how do you do this? Because of the resurrection of Yeshua, it means that someday everything sad will become untrue. If you want to write the greatest play, someday you will. If you want to compose the greatest music, someday you will. Whatever kind of work and success your redeemed heart wants, in conformity with God's, God's ordained gifts and calling for you, someday you will achieve it. You can live in hope because of the future renewal of the earth. His famous hymn says, Joy to the World on the Overhead. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Because Yeshua died, because he took the thorns, we get the highway. And someday all the thorns will be gone. But you not only get hope, you also get rest. You also get this final Shabbat rest. That, that soullessness, that reason you work too hard or you don't work hard enough, that soullessness is healed. Thank you. Hallelujah. Look at Matthew 11, uh, verse 28. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. From gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does it mean when Yeshua says, take my yoke upon you? Yeshua is not saying, don't work. Rather, he's saying, work for me. He's saying, I'm the only boss who won't grind you into the ground. From now on, see what I've done for you. Look at the work that I have done for you. Look at the deadly work I did for you. I was ground into the ground for you. Now, you work for me, Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, in obedience uh, and holiness and the fear of the Lord. And if you work for me, Yeshua says, then finally you'll be liberated. You'll know the truth and it will set you free. Work for Yeshua. Don't ultimately work for anybody else. Do your work for him, because on the one hand, you won't overwork, because he know, you know he loves you. On the other hand, you won't underwork, because he's, always, he's looking and watching, he's observing, and you want to give him your best. The work you can do, because he, this work you can do, because he gave you the ultimate work, uh, the finished work on the tree. So do your work, and love your work, and re your work, and redeem your work. Amen. Let's stand and pray. like the music team to please come up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, today for this biblical theology of work. The work is a positive good. The work even predates the fall. Oh, and that our work should benefit the whole community, not only ourselves. Lord, help me today to, to choose work and to do work for how it helps my family and my community and my society and my congregation uh, and not just myself. Help us to discern your calling uh, on on our life. And help me, Lord, to choose work consistent with my calling. Lord, help me to understand my gifts and my talents that you've given me, the things I love doing as an indication, as a hint of the type of work you're calling me to. Help me to pursue work in such a way as to give you joy. And Lord Yeshua, help me to re-narrate our master narrative to align with yours. Help me to dedicate my life and my work to your kingdom project of renewing and reweaving and recreating the world in true shalom, which only happens, of course, Lord, by changing hearts. And Yeshua, you've given us a role to play in this as we preach your gospel. Lord Yeshua, thank you. You took the thorns. You took the thistles, the symbol of the fall. Yeshua, you became a curse for us on the tree. You who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become God's righteousness in you. And the Lord, help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling as we live for you in holiness, in obedience, in righteousness. We pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.